Okay, well, as Alan said, we're starting a new um, sermon series in the book of Ezekiel. It's on page 830 in the um, Chapel Bibles. If you've got one handy, the, the tags are in the right place in the large print ones, but um, 830. And uh, those of you that were with us through our studies in Luke's Gospel, there are 24 chapters in Luke's Gospel. It took us nearly three years. There are 48 chapters in Ezekiel. And we're going to do it in 13 weeks. So it's going to be a bit more of a whistle-stop tour than, uh, than Luke was. And it, I, feel it's, I feel it's rather like trying to stuff an elephant into a shoebox. There's, there's so much to kind of cram in. But we're going to do our best. So, uh, so I'm going to read. We're sort of covering the first three chapters this morning. I'm not going to read all three chapters. Uh, I'm going to read the first um, a chapter and a bit. And, uh, uh, and then we're going to have a, just a, a song. And then we'll, we'll sort of unpack it. But page 830, if you're in the chapel Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upwards. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. 
And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one towards the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like the throne, a throne of sapphire, and high above on a throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. Father, you are a sovereign, holy and awesome God. And we bow down in your presence this morning. We bow down in surrender and we bow down in humility before your word. And we pray that you would speak and that we would listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I hope no one's got um, lunch booked before about three o'clock. Because uh, there's quite a lot to pack in. But um, we'll do our best. So (laughs) That's fine. So Ezekiel... Just, uh, just, and you may be kind of, you know, the, re- the I just sort of read the first chapter, and you may be thinking, what on earth? <laughs> what on earth has that got to do with the price of fish or anything else? Uh, but it has everything to do with us, has everything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, has everything to do with the issues that we're facing in the 21st century. There's a, I often say there's a lovely. There's a lovely symmetry through scripture. There's a lovely kind of um, interconnectedness between what we read in the Old Testament, what we read in the New Testament and the lives that we live. And, uh, and, and right at the start of Ezekiel, there's one of these lovely little pieces of symmetry where Ezekiel makes reference to his age. He says, in the 30th year, and there's a little footnote that gives the alternative translation, in my 
30th year. Ezekiel is 30 years old when he begins his public ministry. Well, who else was 30 years old when they began their public ministry? Jesus. So there's immediately, there's a, there's a connection, there's a connectedness, there's a symmetry between the way that as, when Ezekiel is called and what he is called to do and the age that Jesus is when he begins his public ministry and he begins to proclaim a message. And as we go through Ezekiel, you will see the connectedness. But there's a connectedness not just between Ezekiel's calling and Jesus' calling. There's a connectedness between the calling of the church and our calling in this generation as God's people in this place to be like Ezekiel, to be like Jesus. And so the message of Ezekiel is perfectly relevant for us. And everything that we're going to study and read over these next 13 weeks will speak into our lives and hopefully, hopefully inspire us and encourage us. Ezekiel, in my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. So how did they get here? What's the context? Where, what, where is, when is Ezekiel speaking? Why is Ezekiel speaking? You will remember, hopefully, that the nation of Israel has been split into two separate kingdoms very soon after the founding of the nation. Uh, it's King David, there's King Solomon, and under the reign of King Solomon, immediately the kingdom of Israel is split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of ten tribes, the southern kingdom of two tribes. By the time of Ezekiel, the northern kingdom of ten tribes is already in exile. The southern kingdom is living under judgment, and under the time of King Jehoiachin, the exile begins. And we read about it in 2 Kings chapter 24, uh, verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Zahushta, daughter of El Nathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Uh, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles and his officials all surrendered to him. Verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials and the leading men of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and a 1,000 craftsmen and artisans. Uh, he made Mattanai, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So by the time of Ezekiel, uh, the southern kingdom, they are in exile. And it is a time of crisis for them. A great crisis has befallen before them. They are in exile. They're five years into it. And they're struggling with two... Two particular issues that are in front of them, and they are two particular issues that are front and centre of our own culture and our own day. And they're two issues that the book of Ezekiel addresses, unpacks and resolves. And so this is relevant for us because these two issues are things that we wrestle with in our own culture and in our own society. The two issues are these. The, The exiles are living with false hope and false despair. False hope and false despair. The false hope is this. The false hope that they had lived with was 
We can live in any way we want and God will still be for us. We can live by our own rules and live in whatever way we want and God will still defend us. And that's where they had got to prior to the exile. And so they had become very sloppy about their worship of God. They'd become very sloppy about their, the sacrifices that they were bringing. They'd become very sloppy about justice and about caring for one another. And that's the reason they're in exile. And they got to the point of thinking, well, you know, this Jehovah is our God. And whatever we do, he'll have our back and he will defend us. And so even though the prophets are coming and God is saying, look, if you, if you don't reform your ways, disaster is going to befall you. They're like, no, it doesn't matter. We can live whatever way we want. God won't mind. And uh, that's prevalent in our own culture today. There are still a majority of people who have a belief in God and awareness of God. But what goes with it is, yeah, I believe in God, but he won't mind how I live my life. I can live whatever way I want and God won't mind. That's the the false hope that has come crashing down. It's a deception that we can live whatever way we want and God won't mind. That's the false hope. The false despair is now they're in exile. It's, well, God has failed. God has let us down. God isn't faithful. God isn't trustworthy. We've fallen into disaster and now, now there's no way out. Because God has failed. There's no way out. And that's the other thing that we live with in our own culture is this sense of despair. That there's no way out of the the crisis that we see in our culture. The sort of surveys of attitudes amongst uh, millennials and, and young people is a sense of despair for the future. Because they see the mess that our world is in and they don't see any any way out. And so there's this thing of, well... Well, God has abandoned us. God has let us down. There's no, there's no hope. So there's a, there's a false hope and a false despair. And Ezekiel will address, will address those things. And so Ezekiel is called. And in, the, in chapter one, we have this, um, just this incredible description of something that's indescribable. Uh, I, I found, I sort of um, found a couple of sort of pictures. Did anyone see the um, uh, the fireworks, uh, the, uh, the London fireworks on New Year's Eve? Did anyone stay up and watch the, yeah, just kind of watch the fire? Was anyone actually there on the, on the South Bank? I don't suppose, suppose they were, but um, it's pretty impressive on TV. To actually kind of be there is it's kind of, you know, just you can't kind of take it all in. But imagine you kind of, you watch that and then the next day you wrote a letter to someone or, or an email. You wrote to someone and trying to describe what you had seen. First off, how difficult would it be to describe the fireworks on, on New Year's Eve? You'd really be struggling for the language to try and describe what you're, you know, what you're seeing. And then when you'd written it down and you'd sort of tried to explain it, you'd, you'd think, well, actually, no, that, that's not even a half of, of what I saw. It, it's one of those things you, you just, you can't... There aren't words to describe what you've seen. And when you try and explain it to someone else, you think, it it was just, it was bigger. And and this is what Ezekiel is, is, he's trying to describe something that's that's indescribable. And so when you go through chapter one, what you see over and over again is Ezekiel saying, it was like this. Uh, It was like this. It it was like a man. It, it It was like wheels that were, he's trying to describe something that, that's kind of one picture this is another one just 
you know, they're very, you know, they're very different. It's, it's, a, it's just something that's indescribable. It's a curtain is being drawn back on something, on something divine. And so we're, we're reading it and we're, we're struggling to understand what Ezekiel's kind of talking about because he's seeing something that is, is so big, it's so awesome, it's so majestic. It's actually indescribable. And, it's, and, it's, and through this chapter, we're being taken on a journey. And we'll see where that journey ends in a moment. But um, it's, it's a journey towards coming into the presence of, of someone. I, my um, niece was married a couple of years ago at um, Hampton Court. She, um, uh, uh, my, my nephew uh, very wisely uh, or very fortuitously married a Texan millionaire. So when it came to the wedding, because her dad was paying for it, no expense was spared. So the wedding was at Hampton Court. And it was, I mean, you'd never been to a wedding like it. It was just amazing. But part of the package was, uh, during the, sort of between the, the, the wedding and the reception, we had a sort of guided tour of Hampton Court, which was, uh, which was quite nice. And uh, the thing that really struck me was, you know, it, it, back in the day when Henry VIII was living there... If you wanted to go and, you know, visit the king, you didn't just rock up at the front door, ring the doorbell, and, um, you know, Henry VIII would, you know, open the door in his slippers and dressing gown and say, all right, come on in, mate, let's have a, let's have a brew. You know, it doesn't work like that because he's the king. So when you go into Hampton Court, you sort of, you go up this amazing staircase, and then there are a series of reception rooms. And I forget how many there are. It's like three or four or five reception rooms. And he goes, I think it's the same at Versailles. And all of these places where there was a king or a royal presence. Because you can't just walk in and be in the presence of the king. You need to be prepared to be in the presence of the king. And the whole architecture of the building is designed to tell you who you're about to be in the presence of. The whole architecture of the building is designed basically to intimidate you. And make you realise who you are and who the king is. And so at Hampton Court, you go through these different rooms and they're all very, very grand. And you go into one and you think, wow, this is amazing. And then you go through a door into the next one and you go, wow, this is amazing. And then you, and so by the time you get to the king, you are in awe. You are in awe of who you're going to meet. And you know exactly who you are and you know exactly who the king is. And what Ezekiel is being shown, he's basically being taken through these stage, these rooms in order to meet with and to come into the presence of Almighty God. And so just to pull out one or two of the things, you know, verse 10, their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, but on the right side, the face of a lion, on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. All of those symbols in the culture of the day, they, they speak of royalty. They speak of sovereignty. They speak of kingship. This is who Ezekiel is being ushered into the presence of. This is the supreme king, uh, the king of the universe. And then all this stuff about, you know, uh, the wheels. This is not a god who is limited in locality. So many of the gods in the ancient world, they were limited by locality. So you had gods of the mountains and gods of the forest and gods of the trees and, you know, you know, wherever you went, there was a different God that you had to find and you had to appease. This is the God of the universe. This is a God who can be anywhere and everywhere at the same time. That's the point of the, of the intersecting wheels. This is a God who can be in all places at all times. 
Uh, The wheels are covered in eyes. This is a God who knows everything, who sees everything. This is not one God amongst many. This is the only true God. This is the sovereign God. This is the awesome God of the universe. And so Ezekiel sort of led through this room and then verse 22 spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Uh, And then when the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the, this word like, it keeps coming up, doesn't it? Like the roar, like the voice of the almighty, like the tumult of an army. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads and they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse was what looked like a throne of sapphire and above uh, on the throne was the figure like that of a man. Ezekiel is being led into the presence of God. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire and that from there down he looked like fire. Brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. We have, you know, so often we make our God too small. We forget who God is. Uh, We forget the enormity and the awesomeness of God. Uh, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking. This whole chapter has been Ezekiel being called, chosen and led, if you like, through these kind of anterooms into the presence of Almighty God. And what's his response? He falls face down. I am, uh, you know, in our, we're so, because of what Jesus has done for us and because Jesus has opened the way for us to the Father and because we know that, you know, Jesus is our brother and we think about God as our Heavenly Father, the danger is that we just become overly familiar with the character of God and we forget his holiness and we forget his awesomeness. We forget that when we come into his presence, you know, we should fall face down. It's it's one of the things I think we've, you know, when I was a kid and I used and I went to church, you know, when you went to church, you know, there were pews, which were very uncomfortable. I'm glad we got rid of those. But, um, but because there were pews, there was, you know, there were kneelers. There was a place to kneel. And when you, when you came into church, the first thing that you did was you would kneel down and prepare yourself for worship. And then when there were intercessions, you would, you would kneel. And, uh, and then during communion, you would, you know, you would kneel. And I just, you know, I grew up with, with that. And, you know, we've, we've lost that because we've changed our architecture. But actually, there's something, there's something very profound about, you know, worshipping through our posture. And, um, you know, maybe we've, we've kind of lost something because, you know, architecture speaks of, of, of worship. But he comes into God and he falls face down because he realises who God is. He realises who God is and for us as, as the people of God, as we come into worship, we need to remember who God is, the enormity of, of just his majesty and his sovereignty. And actually the most appropriate thing is to fall face down in his presence. But then comes God's call and the, the, whole, the whole point of, of this is because 
God is calling Ezekiel for a purpose. He's calling Ezekiel because, because God wants to rescue his people. Remember I spoke before about the two, you know, the, the, the false hope and the false despair. The, the false hope is that we can do what, our, what we like and God won't mind. But actually God does mind because he is holy and he's majestic. And then the, the false despair of, oh, the, you know, there's nothing that we can do now. We're, we're lost and we're in despair and there's no way back. And well, actually God... God cares and God loves and God is a rescuer and a redeemer. And that's the reason that he calls Ezekiel, because there's a message that he wants to give. So chapter two begins, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me on my feet and I'd heard him speaking. Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So Ezekiel is called and God says, um, I'm going to give you a message to give to them. But they're a rebellious nation. They're they're stiff-necked. They're obstinate. And... uh, they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. They are going to reject you. Because that's what they're like. And uh, they're, they're rebellious. They're in revolt against me. Regardless of that, whether they listen or whether they don't listen, you're to give the message. So remember the, 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 the symmetry between the Old and the New Testament. So Jesus comes into the world and he preaches a message. And the message is rejected. Uh, remember John's gospel. Um, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. Beginning of Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus' first words in, recorded in Mark's gospel. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the message. When Ezekiel preaches his message, uh, people don't want to listen because they're obstinate and stubborn hearted and they reject the message. And God says, don't worry about that. Your job is to proclaim the message, whether people will listen or not, because it is what it is. Jesus speaks his message and for three years proclaims the kingdom of God and is rejected, misunderstood at every turn. But Jesus keeps preaching it, whether people listen or not, because it is what it is. For us as the church, we need to proclaim the good news of Jesus and the message of God, whether or not people will listen. And sometimes people will listen and sometimes they won't, but that doesn't matter. The message, it is what it is. I was just, um, uh, it was, um, I recorded over Christmas, um, Chariots of Fire. Uh, which was, I think it's like 40 years ago now, um, Chariots of Fire was, um, uh, was, was, was first made, but I, I watched it last night. Uh, and I was just struck again, You'll, if you know the story, it's of this um, uh, Eric Liddell, who was a, a, a Scottish missionary, but who could literally run like the wind. And in, in the story, he ends up having to, um, uh, he's running at the 1924 Paris Olympics, and one of the heats is scheduled for a Sunday. And he won't run on a Sunday. That's the, and so in the end, he, he, he kind of swaps with Harold Abrams, who is a, 
who was a Jew, so it kind of worked quite well because Harold didn't mind running on a Sunday, and uh, so that's kind of the way it works. But there's this lovely scene where um, uh, Eric Little is called in by the, the kind of the um, the chair of the Olympic Committee, and they're all kind of posh lords and stuff in, the, in those days. And there's the Prince of Wales, and they're basically trying to persuade Eric Little, you know, to basically to compromise his beliefs so that he'll run on a Sunday. And they're saying, well, you know, you need to put, you know, king and country before God. And, and Eric Little, he just says, he says, well, I can't. He says, I can't. He says, the Sabbath is a day of rest. He says, I won't run on a Sunday. And, and they're saying, oh, you would do it. And he says, he says, no. He says, God has spoken whether I like it or not. And I can't change that. And, um, and that, that's what's going on. You know, if God speaks, you don't argue. You know, it's, it's like you, you don't have a discussion about what God has said. If God has said something, you just obey. You don't, you know, you can't get, enter into discussion. You can't say, oh, no, but that's too hard. I don't want to do that. Uh, you know, so, so much of the mess that the church has got itself into is because... As Ezekiel did and as Jesus did, we've come up against the opposition and the rejection and we don't like that. And so, well, we, we water things down and we compromise and we say, oh, well, oh, all right then. Or, well, you know, we'll meet you halfway. We'll meet you halfway. How's that? You don't meet God halfway. <laughs> you know, we've just had this huge, long introduction to the enormity and the sovereignty and the awesomeness and the presence of God. You don't meet him halfway. Uh, you fall face down. And you say, yes, Lord. That's what Eric Little did. He died as a missionary in China at the end of the Second World War because he heard God's voice and he said, this is what I'm going to do. You don't compromise. You don't argue. You don't have a discussion. And Ezekiel is told, you know, I'm sending you to an obstinate, stubborn people who are going to reject you. But just tell them anyway. Because it's the truth. It's a great message, isn't it? You know, you don't follow Jesus for an easy life. You follow Jesus, you're going to end up being, being rejected and, and, and opposed and ridiculed and mocked because, because people don't like the message. How are we doing? Oh, all right. Oh, it's not even 12 o'clock. Uh, here we go. So um, he says, and there's this thing of, you know, Solomon, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live amongst scorpions. Don't be afraid of what they say or terrified of them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. Then he says, um, uh, verse 8, But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of, a, of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So what we need to sort of you know, understand right start is Ezekiel is not coming up with bright ideas of his own. He's not kind of looked at the situation and thought, well, we're in a bit of a mess so the way we could deal with this is, you know, we could try this or we could try that. No, Ezekiel is being called. And then God says to Ezekiel, look, this is what you are to say. 
I want, literally, I want you to, you know, um, figuratively, I want you to eat this message. I want you to consume this message, which is my word, and then I want to tell people what you have consumed. And that's what we're called to do as the people of God. We're not called to come up with bright ideas and good suggestions and ways in which we might be able to make the world a better place. We're called to consume God's word and then to speak it. We don't come up with our, with our own message. We just, we, uh, this is why I was you know, encouraging you last Sunday at the beginning of this year to make you know, Bible reading the habit of your life, the daily habit of your life to be literally, you know, don't, you know, don't literally eat the pages, but, um, you know, but literally consuming the word of God because that's what we should be speaking, which is why we can be very you know, bold about what we, what we say because it's, you know, it's not us. These, it's not us saying, well, this is, this is the way life should be lived. It's us saying, no, this is God, how God has created us to live. And, um, you know, God's desire for all of us is, you know, God is not some divine spoil sport. He wants to restrict our lives and hinder our freedom. God wants us to be the best version of ourselves that we can possibly be. God wants us to live the best possible life that we can. And he's designed us and created us and he knows how we're meant to live and how we're meant to work. And he gives us that message to proclaim. So when we speak the whole message of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, even though it's, it's kind of rejected because people's hearts are, are stubborn and obstinate and proud, it is good news because God's desire is that we should be the best version of ourselves that we can possibly be. And until we come into relationship with him, we will, we will never know that. So Ezekiel is told, eat this message and then proclaim it. And so that's what he does. And he He says, verse three of chapter three, I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. The word of God, when you read it, it tastes as sweet as honey because it's good news. Uh, When you speak it out and you end up getting a good kicking because people don't want to hear it, that's a different matter. But when you consume it, it's it's the most beautiful thing because it's the words of God. Uh, Let me just give you a little bit of hope that we are going to finish reasonably soon. (laughs) Three three more things that I want to highlight uh, from the the, the rest of the chapter. First of all, verse 8, Ezekiel is told by the Lord, he says, he's basically told right up front, this is going to be really hard. This is going to cost you dearly. And as we go through Ezekiel, we'll see how much it costs Ezekiel. He says, you know, those who people won't want to listen, even though they're in a mess, even though they're in exile, and even though you're coming to bring them a message to get them out of exile, people won't want to listen. It's exactly the same in our own culture. We have a message of good news. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will find forgiveness for your sins and eternal relationship with a heavenly father who loves you guaranteed you don't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it it's a gift of God through Jesus's sacrifice on the cross that sounds like good news isn't it we preach that and people are still going to give us a good kicking because they don't want to hear it because people's hearts are stubborn and obstinate and proud and this is what um is either verse eight I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are I will make you as unyielding, as hardened as they are. Just reminded that people aren't going to welcome the message because people don't like it. 
Our hearts are proud and selfish and we don't like surrendering our own sovereignty to God. That's the big issue for human beings. We've declared our sovereignty of God and we don't want to give it up. And that's why we kind of, we kick against it. But what God says to Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to make you as unyielding, as hardened as they are. So for us, as the people of God in this generation, we need to be strengthened by God to be as unyielding and hardened against our secular culture as it is against us. Actually, no, we're not going to compromise. We're not going to change. God has spoken and it's not us to us to change it or to compromise on it or to, you know, to, to brush under the carpet the bits that are a bit too challenging that we don't like, but we won't do it on our own. This is why Jesus said, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit because you're not going to be able to do this on your own. You're going to find yourself in court and you won't know what to say. But don't worry about what to say when you're in court because I will give you the words. God will strengthen us and enable us to do this. He'll make us as unyielding and as hardened as the opposition. Uh, Verse uh, 16, chapter 3. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. I've made you a watchman. If you, um, in ancient days, you... um, if you lived in a, a town or a city, it would have a wool built around it and you would place watchmen on the walls who would keep a watch to warn you of impending danger. That's what they were there for. And if they saw people galloping over the horizon that they didn't recognise and then they realised they were enemies, then they would you know, shout down into the town or the city, there's, a, you know, there's an enemy approaching, we need to prepare, we need to get ready, there is danger Ezekiel is called by God to be a watchman for the people of Israel to say, look, you are in, you know, that you're in trouble. You're in trouble, but there is a way out. There is a way of rescue. That's our calling as Christians, as the people of God. It's to speak into our culture and in our society to say, look, there is there is danger. There is danger. What's the the danger for the people of God in the Old Testament was that they were uh, they were exiled from from the promised land. The danger for our culture and the message that we need to give is is spiritually people are exiled from the presence of God because of sin and wrongdoing. That's the effect that it has. When you uh, because we are we are sinful and we've rejected God's ways, we are in exile from God's presence. And what Jesus came to do on the cross was to bring us back into the presence of the Father. And our task as the people of God is to speak into our culture and to warn people that they are facing a lost eternity without Jesus Christ. That's our role as watchmen in the world, is to speak that message, to say there is a a broad path that leads to destruction and a narrow path that leads to salvation. That's what Jesus said. And that's our role as watchmen. Uh, Finally, verse... um, Uh, 25 and you son of man they will tie with ropes you will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you'll be silent and unable to rebuke them though they are a rebellious house but when I speak to you I will open your mouth and you shall say to them 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. Whoever will listen, let them listen. And whoever will refuse, let them refuse. For they are a rebellious house. So Ezekiel has been, he's been called by God for a purpose. And his purpose is to speak the words of God. And the words of God will reveal that uh, they will give the lie to the false hope and the false despair that the exiles are living with. The false hope that it doesn't matter what they do, God will still have their back that is being shattered by the exile. And the false despair that God has abandoned them. The message that Ezekiel will bring is actually God does care how you live. He is a holy God and he does care and that's why judgment has come. But he's also a God who wants to rescue and redeem and to save. And if they will listen to the words of Ezekiel, then they will find that salvation. It's the same message that Jesus brings. Jesus brings a message. He says, repent and believe the good news. Why repent? Because you can't just live the way, any way you want to live and think that God won't care because he does. He's a holy God. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is God has sent in Jesus a rescuer. And that's the message for us too. To proclaim a message that actually repentance is required because we are stubborn and hard-hearted and have rejected God's ways. But it's a message of hope because Jesus on the cross has done everything necessary for us to come into relationship with him. But the warning is... It's costly. It costs Ezekiel dearly. It costs Jesus dearly. And if we seek to be faithful to the good news of Jesus, it will, it will be costly for us. But you, you don't compromise what God has said. You can't compromise his nature. You just have to say it as it is. So let us this morning, as we begin this journey in Ezekiel, be be challenged and uh, be encouraged, but maybe also take note of, of the warning. The warning that without Christ, we are in exile from God and will remain in exile from God for eternity unless we choose his path of salvation, which is the path of Jesus. So let's take a moment to pray together uh, just to take a moment in the presence of God. We've been reminded this morning of the holiness of God, his sovereignty of Ezekiel, the curtain being drawn back and Ezekiel seeing the majesty of God and falling on his face in worship. And that's the only right and proper response to coming into the presence of God is to fall on our faces in worship. Father, thank you that your word has reminded us that you are, you are a holy God. Who is, you are jealous for your name and jealous for your ways. And you do care about the way in which we live. And there is a judgment when we live outside of your will and your ways. There are consequences. But Father, thank you for the reminder that your desire is that we should be the best versions of ourselves, live the best possible life, because that's what you want for us. But that life only comes through surrender to you. So Father, this morning, may we come in surrender to you.
And may those of us who know and love you be faithful in proclaiming your word and your message into our world, which is so lost and so broken. Holy Spirit, even now, would you minister your grace to us? And as we go from this place in a few moments' time, uh, Lord, would you continue to speak to us uh, with the things that have been from you this morning remain, remain in our hearts and continue to challenge and inspire us in the days to come. And uh, Lord, as our, we've already been reminded this morning in our, our, our verse for this year, may your message spread rapidly and be honoured. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.